Uh, sorry about that. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our class tonight. We are still looking at Romans. Um, yet, today, we're going to, um, although in theme and, and part of the study and search that I've been on regarding Romans, because this stems from that, and stems from where we ended up last uh, time in class 43 concerning 2 Corinthians chapter 10 when Paul speaks of being when he is weak then he is strong and there were two words that I was um, searching out in the phrase when I am weak then I am strong and one of those words and we'll talk about it as we go in this class today took me to Luke chapter 18, and specifically uh, that particular word took me to Luke chapter 18 and verse, let me turn to it real quick, verse 27, Uh, no, I've got, yeah, no, I have it here, Luke chapter 18, verse 27, and he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with with God. And I began to, you know, I looked at that in the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and that is absolutely true, and we're going to see that clearly, and probably more clearly, as we proceed today. But as I did that, and saw that those two seemingly contrasting words uh, were the same in the Greek, I began to read the entire chapter, Luke 18. And I was just taken by it. And all of the things that were said in it, the surroundings, the events. Because to me, what I began to understand is that the entire chapter of Luke 18 and even before Luke 18, you get into all of this. and But let, right now, because you can go even into Zacchaeus uh, when he comes to his house and the pounds in, in chapter 19 that he begins to do a parable about the 10 pounds. You, you see all of that, the same thing being found um, to, to relate to what we're going to talk about in, in the 18th chapter of Luke. But Specifically, I want to concentrate on that chapter because I begin to see that this chapter is a phenomenal declaration of of God's power being necessitated for anyone at all to be saved. And that's going to become clear. For anyone to enter the kingdom of God... God's power based upon the faith of the one that is necessitating that power to be acted upon him for anything to be realized. We have to understand these things that are said in this chapter beautifully depict that. We also have to see that in the context of this, Jesus is going to be indicting his people, the people that he came to, indicting them for their 
belief that because they do the law, You'll see this, and he's going to everything, every every particular aspect of this chapter, and these different things that happen, the the parables and the events that Jesus involves himself in. They're all to point to the to the Jew who has total faith in his ability to keep the law, to do what the law says, to carry it out flawlessly. And to rebuke that that concept. And to show that for anyone to enter the kingdom of God, faith is necessitated, not works. And the question that surrounds all of this and prefaces everything that we'll see here is a question that men have taken in, in theological circles, and they still ask that question today as if it is Jesus asking a question that still has not yet been answered 2,000 years later. And it is about, will he find faith on earth when he comes? So you can preface this whole thing with that statement, and we will. But let's, in the meantime, before we read those verses... I think it's important for us to read another verse in Romans to keep our Romans theme. Uh, Let me, uh, I pulled it up here on my phone. This is in Romans chapter 9 and verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, listen to that phrase, listen to that word. The Gentiles who did not pursue, go after it as with works as the means, to pursue it with works and efforts. They did not pursue righteousness, but they have obtained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Basically, worded better, I think it would be, they did not actually succeed in reaching the goal they were after under the law or by the law or through the application of the law to their own bodies, doing what it said. Pursuing it with all of their efforts and ability, they'd never reached the goal, which was righteousness. They believed they had, some believed they had, some like Paul realized that every time I try to do it, evil is still there. When I would do good, you know, evil is still, I, I am the opposite of the thing I'm pursuing. And I cannot be anything else. There has to be a change internally that comes into play here, not just efforts that are flawless through my body or by my hands. Much more than that is involved. But all that is involved, all that was necessitated for righteousness to be, so for the one who necessitated righteousness, And that is the soul of every man, woman, or child, Jew or Gentile. For that to actually be a reality, 
The necessity was God himself doing and being that unto the soul. And that had to be obtained not by works, could never be by works, but by faith. So those who pursued it by the law did not actually reach it and succeed. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. You see the necessity here, faith. But as it were, based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling a rock of offense, whosoever believes in him will not be put to shame. There is the rock of offense. See? There's the stumbling stone, but it also is a foundation upon which those who believe stand firmly and securely, unmovable, unshakable, anchored, Upon the rock who is Christ. It is a stumbling stone to those who pursue works-based relationship with God. Works-based righteousness. A righteousness that is attained by effort, blood, sweat, and tears. It is an offense to those because the simplicity of it offends the natural mind that pursues spiritual ascendancy with everything that is within them. They desire to have a place in this picture where they have attained it by their own efforts. And the rock of offense that stands there and abides there and remains eternally there is this reality. You must Believe on the sufficiency of another because there is no sufficiency in you. Those who believed have obtained. Those who worked have not. And again, this is, this is the contrast between the Jews And the Gentiles who believed and the Jews who believed and the Jews who worked for it and the Jews and the Gentiles who received Christ as the thing that the Jews under the law worked for. There is the difference. This is the thing that we're seeing brought about in this chapter. And I want to talk about that because it has to do with exactly what we've been talking about in Romans We have been looking again at first, second, third chapter of Romans and seeing how Jew and Gentile are both on the ground, level ground that says no one is righteous, no, not one. Then we bring it over into Abraham and Sarah who have a calling, who are brought by God with a calling and a promise and yet have no ability in themselves to ever see it through or bring it about, which demanded, necessitated that God himself do what was impossible for them to do. And we're about to read that verse we just began with. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And that is spoken to a, Young, rich, 
man who believed he had done everything necessary. But let's look at this chapter, if you will. Because I think it's, it's, it's going to be helpful. And there are sections to this, and we're going to look at this. There's the section that deals with just the beginning of this. You'll see there's the first section with the widow and the judge. And the widow and the judge will kind of set it up. Set up the whole scenario that we'll see follow from there. This widow and the judge has a beautiful it, it pictures something wonderful. And the next section you're going to see is the Pharisee and the publican. And on the surface, you would say the Pharisee, the righteous man, the publican, a sinner, right? This is the distinction of flesh. This is the distinction that will be challenged by Jesus. Then you have the little children. Where they are brought unto Jesus for him to bless them by the laying on of hands. And then the fourth section. Basically here is the rich young. They call him a rich young ruler. These are the four sections we're going to address in this lesson. And again, the widow and the judge that we're going to read at the verse sets everything up with this question that the judge begins, asks at the beginning. So let's read chapter 18 of Luke, verse 1. He spake a parable. This is Jesus again speaking a parable to them. (coughs) Excuse me, unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying... There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. That's important. This judge was not a believer. He was a man of the world. He did not fear God, did not fear men. And there was, or did not regard men, care of men. And then there was a widow in the city. She came unto him saying, avenge me of my adversary, And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she wearies me. And the Lord said, now this is important, this is a a picture that's painted by Jesus in this parable. And I want to I want to address that first, but let's let's finish reading this section. And the Lord said, "Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall not God avenge His own elect, who cry day and night unto Him, though He bear long with them? I tell you that He will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh." Shall he find faith on the earth? Again, unfortunately, theologians today have taken that question that Jesus is about to take throughout these particular sections of this chapter and show 
how he will find faith, what it means for him to find faith when he comes. They have taken it, however, and pushed it off into the, into the future and said, are you, do you have enough faith when he comes? Is he going to find you uh, faithful and having faith? Are you going to be a believer? Or are you going to be a non-believer when he comes? So it puts a lot of pressure on people to assess themselves at what their level of faith is at this moment because we don't want him to come and not find faith and all of that. We, I mean, that's, that's the way it's been presented. Much more detailed than that, of course, but nevertheless, that's the synopsis of it. Now... What's the picture here? Why is he, why is this first part of this chapter important to the rest of it? Well, again, the judge feared not God. And here's this widow who wants God to avenge her. She's crying out to him. Day and night. Day and night. And, and instead of avenge, there's a word, vindicate. Vindication. Will you vindicate me? Will you bring vindication to me? The thing that I have wanted, the thing that I've been crying out for you, this is what the widow is wanting from the judge. The judge is the one that can bring this about, and she continues day and night to badger him, trouble him, by crying to him, crying to him, begging him, imploring him for the thing that she has wanted to be given unto her. What are we talking about in this? What is Jesus presenting here? The widow is speaking of a people in this picture who have been crying, imploring day and night for the thing that they have Desired the thing that they have even been promised and have not yet received, the thing that they have, the thing that would vindicate them in the sight of all, to finally be given to them. That's the picture. And much more than that. I'm I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each one of these things. You can look at it yourself. But here's, (coughs) here's, um, I believe here's something we can say that is a safe translation. Will I, speaking here, now the Lord says, the, the, the judge says this, the widow cries out incessantly to this judge who regarded not God and says this, shall not God give justice to his elect? See, he's taking it out of this small little context and broadened it out to actually what he's speaking about. Will God not (coughs) avenge his elect? Those to whom he has come, those to whom he has sent. Those to whom he comes to confirm the covenant, will God not speedily avenge? Yes, he will speedily avenge. Speedily 
bring justice. Speedily, without delay, bring vindication to his people. But here's the question. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, Will he find faith on the earth? Why? What does this say? Why is that the answer? Why is that a question in regard to this? The avenging of the people, the vindication of their cry, the giving them of what they are longing for and and crying incessantly for. Because the Son of Man coming is the answer to the cry of his elect. It is the answer to the cry of his people. But here's the question based upon it. Will he find faith when he comes? Why? Here's a translation I believe we could agree on. Will he find those who have faith to receive the actual answer, the actual vindication? The actual justice that they have been crying out for. Because it can only be received by faith. The thing that they have been after. The thing that they have incessantly cried out for. In his coming is bestowed by God. But it must be received by faith. Because works will never attain it. Works is not the means. The law is not the way. The law pointed you to this vindication that's come, who is the Son of Man. So you see this picture, and here's the thing. God is not delaying his vindication of his people. We need to understand that. Those who still hold all of this off in the future, please understand this parable. God will speedily avenge, bring justice and vindication to those who cry out incessantly unto him. He did that in the coming of this son of man. However, it was faith that was necessitated in his coming for them to actually enter in, receive that which God had promised, that which they actually cried out for constantly, that which they wanted and knew was theirs by promise. Will he find faith? You set this up right against John chapter 1, right? He came unto his own. And his own received him not. But to those who received him. That means by faith received him. He gave them the power to become the sons of God. Even those who believe. This is what we're seeing in this chapter. We're seeing Jesus say the thing they've cried out for must be received in the coming of the Son of Man by faith. Will he? And he is there standing there giving this parable and saying, 
I'm looking for faith. That's why in so many cases when people would come, he said, I've not found such great faith. Why? Because the thing that he saw in those instances, in the moments of healing and bringing from the dead or whatever those particular moments were saying, the, the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the master's table. I've not seen such great faith because he came to find faith in the earth, to find those who would receive him as the thing that they wanted and desired and cried for day and night. What they knew was the vindication promise. What they knew was the justice that God had set for them. But they could only receive it by faith. He was after that. That's what he came to see was faith. Those who would receive him as the heir. That they may be found in him and have nothing of their own. There's again the stumbling block. The rock of offense. But that's the only means by which this vindication, this thing actually can happen. So in the Vincent's word studies, will the son of man find on earth a persistence in faith that answers to the widows? Luke 18, how much more, he said... This principle is a familiar one from the Old Testament. God is faithful. Because he says this is a standard. This is again from the uh, IVP Bible background commentary. He says this is a standard Jewish how much more argument. That if this judge who did not even care for God, didn't know God, cared nothing about men... If he would do this, how much more would God be faithful to act on behalf of and vindicate his people? And this sets the stage for what will be written throughout this chapter. Ultimately, we'll see that the matter being addressed is salvation. It is entrance into the kingdom and the means by which the expected end that God has promised would actually be received by his people who had long beaten their breast imploring God for such a vindication and such a justice to be met them, to be given to them. But now he will show his contempt for their self-righteousness and demonstrate that means of such entrance into the kingdom of God is exclusively by faith and not the observation of the law or the riches that such observation seems to garner them. Let's look at this. Keep in context here. This sets it all up. Now you have these other sections. Here's the Pharisee and the publican. Verse, verse 9, chapter 18, verse 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves. Listen to these words. Important. Listen. He <laughs> spake this parable unto, the cert unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. We'll talk about that. Two men, here's the parable. 
It's beautiful how they set up this parable and who he says it to. Because again, this sets it all up. This woman's saying, How's it, when's it going to come? When's it going to come? Remember what uh, Paul says before King Agrippa? And he speaks as one who was of the strictest order, a Pharisee, which is what we're about to see here. And it says that, you know, of the strictest sect, he was raised a Pharisee. And now he is brought and accused before King Agrippa, uh, basically to be put to death or, or how, whatever the judgment would be. Because he is telling them that the hope for which they work night and day in the temple has actually come in the resurrection himself, in Christ the risen one. There he is declaring to them, guys, this, this God has vindicated you. He has given you the thing you've cried out for incessantly. He's given you the answer in the risen son. And yet they will not receive it by faith. They want to still attain it by works. There's the, the situation. Here, there, you see it all through. But it's the same principle being addressed. And these two men are the perfect example. So he sets it up and says that Jesus speaks this parable to those who trusted in themselves. Remember Paul again in Philippians would say, we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit. We are not the concision, we are the circumcision who worship in spirit and have no confidence in the flesh. These people had absolute confidence that they were holy and righteous because of their observation of the law. and They trusted in themselves and their ability to do such a thing and they despised others. We'll talk about that. Here's the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed. Listen to the words again. Pharisee stood and prayed with himself. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Or even as this publican, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. <laughs> now, they trusted. Let's let's before we get to the publican, let's let's speak about this this audience and the Pharisee for a moment. <laughs> it's cold in this room. I'm getting a little congested. Um. The words here say their reliance was exclusively settled upon their works and their separatist lifestyle, which is what Pharisee means, separate. This reliance, although it had assumed spiritual merit, assumed spiritual merit, was of no valid consequence, meaning it brought no substantiation to them internally or before God. So they trusted, they had confidence in themselves, that they were righteous. Jesus confronts the Jews in so many instances where he would condemn their self-righteousness, their self-justification before men, while God knows the sinfulness of their heart. 
whitewashed sepulchers full of dead men's bones. Again, we've said this many, many times that in that, in that picture he's painting for them is a direct slap in the face of every Jew who understood what that meant. To a Jew who would be pointed at and said, you are whitewashed sepulchers, they would understand what that means. When they would, the time for the feasts of Israel came about and they were commanded and required to make the journey from wherever they were to Jerusalem for the feasts, to gather for the feasts of Israel. Three times a year, there would be those who would be sent out to take whitewash, white, like a white paint, and wash it over the sepulchers so that they would be visible to all who were making the journey, so that no one would accidentally touch the sepulcher. Because to touch the sepulcher, meaning to touch that which contained the bodies of the dead, would defile those who were coming to the feasts. So when he says to them, you're whitewashed sepulchers, he means you are a symbol to all those who look at you and say, we are death, we are full of death, and if you touch us, we will defile you. I mean, that's a, hmm, that's not user-friendly Christianity, is it? That's, that's not a seeker-friendly type church. But this is the condemnation he gives to them because he knew what was in their hearts. And the other part of that says that they despised others. And this is an interesting thing because the word despise means to esteem as nothing, to see as contemptible, and to judge as of no account. See, that's how they looked at everyone other than themselves. The word others actually doesn't just speak of particular. It means those of any other group or class of people. Any other group or class of people, they despised them. They said they were of no account. And they were esteemed as contemptible. And in the light of this, go back to Paul in Romans 1, 2, and 3 and see how he debunks all of this. And actually, the expression here is stronger in in Luke 18, verse 9. It actually means the rest. They despise the rest. Because they threw all others besides themselves into one class. And that was contemptible, defiled, and of no account. And this tells us the audience that the emphasis, and the emphasis is going to be made in these happenings, in these parables. Because the question, while will he find faith on earth when he comes, speaks to how Christ comes looking for those who will trust upon him and his sufficiency and not their own. Because in this context, this is how those to whom he comes will actually receive their desired vindication. But this Pharisee is a picture being painted by Jesus in this parable and, 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 is, 
and is uh, a reflection of the whole of these people to whom he's come. To give them what was promised. To vindicate and justify their prayers day and night for all of this time. And yet, they will not receive. Because it must be received by faith. It cannot be received by works. So, speaking of the Pharisee, it says that They both, the publican and the Pharisee, went to the temple. And this looks good, right, for both of them, giving themselves to prayer, supplication, but now we see the distinction. And it's not the distinction that the religious-minded would think would be made. It's just the opposite. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, the King James says. The word stood means to having been placed, he took his stand implies taking up his position ostentatiously with an attitude, thinking it's his place. And what is meant here is that the Pharisee assumed his position before God that he had by right, that's what this word means, to stand as if you have right possession to that place, even possession by birthright. Isn't that the struggle Jesus has with the Jews throughout his ministry on earth? Isn't that the thing that Paul rebukes in his letters to the Judaizers who would come and say, it really belongs to us guys, you must be circumcised for this to be yours too. So he stood there as if the place he was standing was his by birthright. The Pharisee lifted his head and prayed with himself, and the word with Himself, The word with there in this verse speaks of a direction. Thus it is literally interpreted he prayed towards or unto himself. There is a quote here in Vincent's word studies concerning the mindset that was behind this Pharisee. And it speaks to why they, why he would pray, I'm not like other men. Thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. It was not just based upon how well he did what he did according to the law. It was just by, because he was born a Jew. Because look at this mindset. The note, a Jewish saying is quoted that a rabbi ought to thank God every day of his life. Number one, so, because he was not created a Gentile. That's number one. I won't read the other two. There's two more reasons. But the number one reason was he should thank God every day that he is not a Gentile. And that's what this man is doing. Thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. I am not an extortioner, unjust, adulterer. 
But yet, when, when, when Paul speaks concerning those who do what the law says perfectly, he still uses those phrases like adulterer, fornicator, because why? No matter what you are outside and how you present it externally, internally says a whole different thing. Internally, before God, as a Jew born of a natural seed, you are yet dead and in your sins. And all of these things pertain to you. You may not think it. You may believe otherwise. You may think that you have graduated out of it because of your efforts and works, but you have not. You are just as sinful, just as dead. No, not one. Same picture here. But here's the publican. Publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven. But he smote his breast saying, God be merciful unto me a sinner. So in in contrast to the Pharisee, the publican stood there timidly. Not saying this is my place as birthright, but timidly standing there with no assumed right. He stood afar off and would not lift his eyes up toward God. And he cries out for something we'll see later too. He cries out for mercy. Cries out for mercy. And I forgot there's another section. There's actually two, but we're only going to deal with one more. And it is blind Bartimaeus. Blind Bart. Blind Bartimaeus. And what is the thing he will cry out for to this one who passes by that he says, Messiah, son of David, have mercy on me. Here's the cry to receive. Here's the necessity if you're going to receive thing God has given, the vindication, the justice that God has met to you, if you're going to receive it in his coming, it must be by faith, crying out to him for the mercy that is necessitated by you in your condition, for him to do unto and in you what you cannot do yourself, what is impossible for you, no matter how well you think you've done. Or how well you think you do. Or how good you think you are. There is a mercy necessitated. And there is a faith that receives that mercy that God has provided. This is what we're seeing here. This is the picture. And he's just presenting it to the people that believe that because they're so holy by the law, they don't need this. But he's saying, if you're going to receive the thing this widow's crying out for, vindication, justice, the thing the elect of God, the people of God said are theirs by right, then this is how you're going to receive it because it was promised to you first. But you must receive it in this man's coming, but only by faith. So he he continues on. So here's be merciful to me, a sinner. And there are a couple of Beautiful things pointed out in the Greek. Merciful actually speaks of a propitiation. It is the helasterion, the mercy seat. He's crying out for God's mercy to 
be his portion because he knows that he cannot do it. He cannot achieve. He cannot please this holy, righteous God. And he realizes that if God's mercy is not exercised towards him, he has no hope of possessing anything whatsoever before this holy God. He, he show, Jesus in this parable is showing and, and doing so in a way that is totally offensive to these people who are his audience, the ones trusting in themselves. That they are righteous and despising others. He wasn't he wasn't really concerned with their feelings. He was just declaring to them, if you want this vindication, if you want the thing you're crying out for, here's how you receive it. You're not righteous because you do the things this man brags about. Your audacity because of your religious works doesn't give you any standing before God. It is a work of mercy by faith. And there is a definite article before sinner here when he cries out, be merciful to me a sinner. It's actually, have mercy on me, the sinner. Jesus declares to those trusting in themselves who despise others that this man, not the law observer, he says that this is the man The one crying out for mercy, not relying upon himself, not confident in himself that he is righteous. This is the one who went away to his home justified and righteous, imputed righteousness before God. And he went away free, which is what this word means. He went justified. He went away to his house justified. That word means righteous and free. And just. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Humbleth himself by faith, receiving the sufficiency of another will be exalted. That means what? Raised up with the risen one and be found in him. Receiving him as the righteousness they could not attain. Not raised up so you can sit on a throne and think you're a king. That's just the opposite of what he's saying. All right, so we've covered the one, very surface, I know, but now we look at this one, because the same thing is going to be pointed out there, but just in the light, just in a little different way, but in the light of the same reality. Verse 15, Luke 18, verse 15, and they brought unto him also infants. This is directly after this. They brought unto him infants. That he would touch them. Here's, there's a key to that. They brought to him infants that he would touch them. When the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them unto himself and said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not. For of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a child shall in no wise enter therein. Now he's 
he's poignant, pointedly contrasting the, 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 these, these people who think so highly of themselves because of their law observation, because of their birthright, because they were born Jews, because they have a, 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 an audacity about the thing, believing it all belongs to them because they're a Jew. And he's saying the one who's going to actually enter the kingdom is the one that will come to me as these children. Now let's look at how these children come. Again, don't refuse them. Don't hold them back and deny them anything because they've come to me that I may touch them. What is that touching about? According to several sources, and, and uh, one of the sources I wrote down here was the, the uh, New English uh, Bible and their notes, and it says this touch actually refers to one that is given to convey or confer a blessing upon the one that is being touched. You see that? They came to him, these babes, that had no ability in themselves to do or perform for him. No, nothing that they had was sufficient. Nothing that they had was substantial. They were children. They were dependent. They had nothing of their own. And they were brought to him, why? So that he could touch them. He could convey the blessing upon them in their weakened, impotent state in the midst of their dependence upon him for anything, their inability to perform in any way for him. He would put his hand upon them and confer the blessing. See, that's why he came. That's why he came, right? To confer the blessing that they had been crying out for. The blessing. It's called the blessing of Abraham. And Preachers today make it wealth and make it riches and make it Cadillacs and planes. No, it's the blessing that he conveys to those who have no ability in themselves to, to attain it in themselves. It's the blessing of his very being. It's the blessing of his presence. It's the all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. It's every divine substantial reality conveyed in the very presence of his abiding life. That is the blessing he conveys. And they come to him, the little children. Cross-eyed, drooling pooped in their diaper just before they got to him because they are not capable of anything else. And he lays his hands on them and conveys a blessing that they couldn't have unless he did it. The NET Bible also says that the point of this comparison to receive the Kingdom as a child has to do with a child's trust 
and willingness to be fully dependent, not just willingness, but their necessity that they are absolutely dependent upon any and all to receive from all others a humility that is inherent in every child. And I wrote here in this, we see the, and the following examples, we see the necessity the necessary elements that are contrasted, the utter dependence and trust of a child in the next instance, the wealthy ruler who has done all that the law said. Fully trusting in me, to be in full reliance on me is what Jesus is saying for the blessing to be realized, anything at all to be our portion. Jesus showing the necessity to enter in the kingdom and to receive the full divine vindication that has always been promised. Suffer the little children. Don't deny them. I will bless them because they cannot be blessed otherwise. They couldn't do anything. Look at the contrast here in the next, in the next instance. The rich young ruler. Certain ruler. Verse 18, a certain ruler asked him, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What a question. How do you inherit something? How do you do anything to inherit anything? Is an inheritance because you do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why do you call me good? None is good save one, and that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, all of these have I kept from my youth up. So in this example, we're actually seeing the lack that remains in the midst of fully keeping the law's demands. We have to see that what is actually being addressed here, because most people, they they call, you know, they, they speak of the rich young ruler and they make great emphasis upon the rich part and they think that Jesus does too and and there's parts that would make you think that but let's look at this in the context of the whole thing because if we keep it where we always do we will get just like everyone else we'll get caught up in the implication of just material wealth but those riches Attached to this young ruler speaks of a wealth, an accumulation of riches in which those who keep the law placed their trust, their confidence. What was it? The riches riches that they believed they had attained through observation of the law. Paul would say it this way, whatsoever things were gained, Whatever I perceived to be wealth, riches. And that was 
his being a Pharisee, circumcised the eighth day, touching the rights in the law, blameless. This is that wealth he's referring to. And the first question this man asked Jesus is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And this statement exposes a tremendously sad and dangerous mindset that feeds religious lust. What can I do to get this aspect, this thing, this particular divine reality? What can I do? How much more of it can I do? How much more can I give up? What shall I do? What things shall I do to inherit eternal life? And as you consider this, keep in mind Paul's statement along the same line. Romans 7. What good things shall I do? Romans 7 verse 18 through 21. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Listen to this and this Listen to this and keep in mind what the young man just said. All of these I have kept from my youth up. Have you really? Have you really? How to perform what is good I find not. Was he doing the things? Absolutely. Was he committing adultery? No. Was he murdering? No. Was he bearing false witness, stealing? No. Was he performing the law? Absolutely not. Why? Because there was nothing in him capable of accomplishing the true demand of the law. The demand that we read about in Matthew chapter 5, a demand that is actually internal, not external. Not just don't do it. Not just do it this way, not this way. That's not what he's saying. Not just don't commit adultery, but an internal state that cannot even consider the thought of lusting after the woman. That's an internal condition that man in himself does not possess. The good that I would, I do not. The evil which I would not, that I do. Why? Nothing's in me that is good. This is not about good day, bad day. This is not about a good Christian, bad Christian, schizo Christian that doesn't know from one day to the other how it's going to be or how his relationship with God is going to be. That's not the point. If I do that, I would not. Is no more I that do it but sin that dwells in me. There's the culprit. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is still present. And that's the man who cries out for mercy, cries out just like these, cries out, who shall deliver me? Who will bring this salvation, this deliverance, this freedom to me from the body of death? Because you can do the stuff and still be bound to the source that keeps the thing you're doing. Null and void. The source is the issue. What you do is not. You have been corrupted in your mind to believe that you have accumulated riches and wealth as to divine riches and wealth. We need to point out something. Something. 
The word inherit that this man asked about means to obtain by right of inheritance, to receive the portion assigned, to receive an allotted portion. The mentality of those to whom Jesus came. And unfortunately, the same mindset that governs most Christians today says this, doing equals inheriting eternal life. And we are presenting how this man was entirely sold on the fact that doing was the means of obtaining the allotted inheritance of eternal life. Jesus implicates the same type of people in John chapter 5 verse 39. You search the scripture. For in them you assume, you believe you have eternal life. And this implicates their activities based upon their searching the scripture. And this is important to understand when we're being presented with this young ruler. Who has a great amount of accumulated wealth, riches. You believe that you have done all of this stuff properly and you search the scripture to find out how it's applicable to your life and you have applied it to yourself and you're doing it and you believe through that you're going to attain eternal life. But I'm the life that you must attain. And the only way you're going to attain that is by faith. Will he find faith? See, in this young ruler, he's not found faith. He's found faith works he's found confidence in his works and he's found a man who says what else do i have to do i've accumulated all this and still something's missing what else do i have to acquire attain what other wealth riches and gain do i have to get for a life to actually be my portion Jesus begins to present to him the law's demands, how this was what was actually required. And the ruler says, I've done these things. But notice, here is a man that's done what the law said. Implication is without failure. He, without failure, I've done these things. And it's interesting to note that Paul was not obviously the only one that could make that statement. And Jesus will say to him, you're lacking one thing. Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, come follow me. Give up your earthly thing so that you will have heavenly reality. Give up the natural and receive the spiritual. Come unto me, follow me. Keep in mind, these verses, doing the law, remember, do the law, miss one point, entirely guilty of the whole thing. Let's not get caught up again with the monetary riches that are presented here. Because here's what it does. Let's let's look at this. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly 
Shall they that have riches enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? And this is when Jesus says, The things that are impossible with men are possible with God. Now, hold on just a moment. Let's, let's go back for a second. We can't get caught up in the money part, monetary riches here, because we'll miss the point. The point here has to do with a rejection and a refusal to trust upon the accumulation of spiritual wealth, a wealth that could be the basis of self-trust, confidence in the achieved riches, this self-belief in works and their assumed accomplishments fall into place with the question, Will he find faith on earth? Not will he find people doing the law perfectly. Will he find faith on earth? Jesus' answer to the rich young ruler has to do with the counting as loss, the things that you now hold to as proof of your accumulated treasure and your qualification. Because you adhere to the law flawlessly. Give that up. Come unto me. Follow me. And you will have spiritual, heavenly riches. You will have the treasure dwelling in you. His answer to this young man is the same as he said to to those who search the scriptures. Come unto me that you may have the life you assume you should have by law observation. I always place this part here up against what is born of flesh is flesh. Those who trust in the riches and believe they're already qualified to inherit will hardly enter because this interest has to do with faith and dependence as a child so I can bless them. Not that I will receive things that they're already blessed with. The camel through the eye of a needle, the the phrase eye of a needle was always in this culture presented as something that was literally impossible to happen. And you may disagree, but if it was solely about money, if this thing was solely about monetary things, then we are believing God had an issue with saving people that had money. And that these people would say, well, people people with money can't be saved, then God, who can be saved? It would be like saying, if such religious acquisition, such devoted observation cannot ensure the possession or right to eternal life, then who can be saved? If these perfect people can't be saved, perfect externally, perfect by law, you know, rituals and and their observance of them, 
And it will also not necessitate this answer. With man it's impossible. With God all things are possible. This is a declaration of the necessity of God bringing about in man what is impossible to man. To bring into us what is always beyond our reach no matter how well we have done the thing that we thought was needing to be done. Give up your game. Come unto me. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3 that he's done. Same thing. Will he find faith? Will this young ruler come unto me and receive my sufficiency, my wealth, me as the treasure? Or will he focus upon the treasure he's acquired by the doing of these things from his youth? And Matthew, if we go to Matthew 19, to me it clarifies this a little bit because of what Peter will say here at the end of this. So you, you could read these last three verses of 18 or 28, 29, and 30 of, of chapter 18. But I think if we look at it with Matthew 19, verses 27, 28, 29, then we'll understand it a little better. Peter answered, said to him, Lo, we did leave, leave all and follow you. What then shall we have? Jesus said, Verily I say to you, you who did follow me in the regeneration. Listen to that. You who did follow me in the regeneration. That's the answer here. It's, it's not said in this context, but it's the same conversation. And Matthew says, what he says here is you follow me into the regeneration. That is new birth. You who are following me into the new birth and internal change, being born of another seed. When the Son of Man sit upon his throne of glory, you shall sit also upon twelve thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, wife, children, for my name's sake, a hundredfold shall receive and eternal life shall inherit. This is what he's saying. To sit upon 12 thrones, tr judging the 12 tribes of Israel is speaking to his disciples and saying, if you're born again, if you by faith receive me, if you by faith receive me and are born of the seed, this seed of God, this incorruptible seed, and enter the kingdom of God that I will usher in by my very presence, you will sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Meaning you will judge these people who think by works they're attaining it. You will sit upon 12 thrones in my kingdom saying, we have received the thing that you are still waiting on. We have received by faith upon his sufficiency the thing that you in error are believing you're sufficient to acquire by works. Come and receive your Messiah. Come and receive the thing that God promised, the vindication that you've been crying out for. This is the picture. Will you give up the wealth that you think you have before God and receive the treasure that God has for you? The real wealth that God intended for you to have when he promised it at the beginning.
This is the whole picture here. You will receive this life eternal. All things. Hundredfold. Fullness. You will receive it all. Now I've gone long here I know. So I'm going to cut this short. But the next the next thing is this blind Bartimaeus. This blind man that comes and is healed. And it's a beautiful thing. As, he, as Jesus was coming nigh unto Jericho. A certain blind. Again this is answering the question. Will he find faith on earth when he, when he comes? Here's the pictures consistent of saying this is how it's going to happen. It's going to have to be by faith crying out to this Messiah, this one in, sent by God to give you the, the vindication you've cried out for. But you have to receive him by great faith. You have to cry out for him to be merciful unto you because you need his power. No matter how rich you think you are. You are blind. You must be healed. You are dead. You must be raised. As it came to pass, as he was coming to Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the way. Side begging and hearing the multitude pass by, he asked what it meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth passes by and he cried saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, continuing with the primary objective of pressing the point, first addressed at this, in this chapter, we see a blind man. And this blind man now hears that Jesus is passing by and he cries out, Jesus, son of David. So here you have this man, a testimony of the Jews awaiting the coming one, blind, crying out, son of David, recognizing that this Jesus was the promised Messiah. This Jesus was the one that was intended. This is the son of man coming to usher in the kingdom and all the promises and everything, all the blessings. He cries out for mercy from the one that he knows to be the Messiah. This is the essence of what the son of man or the Messiah has come to find on earth. Those who confess a state of unhealed blindness, those who, 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 who confess that the things that were gained to them are not riches at all or not wealth at all. Those who have nothing to boast in of themselves, who have nothing of their own, but must cry out continually without hindrance for the mercy of their Messiah. And he confessed his blindness and Christ did what he promised. The necessary moment was mercy. The the necessity of the moment, sorry, was mercy. Give me my sight. And Jesus said to this man, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. What the word is. Your faith has saved you. See? 
what this is always about. And immediately received his sight, followed Jesus, glorifying God, and all the people when they saw it gave praise unto God. There's the picture. Will he find faith when he comes? What is that? What does that entail? Well, do you have enough faith, Christian brother? If not, you're going to burn in hell. No, that's not what it's about at all. That has no, no bearing upon this particular place or any other place. The meaning is this. When he came as the Son of Man, as the promised Messiah, as the heir of God, coming to the things that belonged to him and those people who were his, did he find faith? The cause for him to find faith is for him to find those who would call out for mercy because they're sinners, who would come to him in dependence upon him to touch them, to lay his hands upon them so that he could confer the blessing promised to those who would cry out to him to receive in him and as him the true riches of heaven itself and, and put away the fool's gold that they assumed that they had, the riches they believed they attained by works. Those who would confess their blindness and cry out for mercy. For him to heal them. Reliant fully upon the sufficiency and the power of this one. That's the picture being pointed at here. That's the picture we've been talking about throughout these lessons. Not I. Christ. That's salvation. Will he find faith when he comes? Yes, he did. And those who received him, he gave them the power to become sons of God. For it is by, by faith through grace. Not works, lest any man should boast. So, thanks for uh, bearing with me in this extended long uh, thing. I hope uh, it was a blessing to you. I uh, look forward to hearing questions if you have any. So if you do, please feel free to contact me, ravenbird at gmail.com, and I'd love to uh, hear from you. Also, if you'd love more teaching in this line, go to my podcast, The Satisfied God Podcast. You can just Google The Satisfied God Podcast, and it'll bring it up. You can find it uh, most places, iTunes, uh, Google Podcasts, uh, Podbean, wherever. Uh, you can find it. It's convenient to be able to listen to wherever you are. And uh, if you have any questions about those or just would like to chat about them, email me, ravenbird at gmail.com. Amen.